Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, book lovers. Welcome back to another episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Lee Pierce, Assistant Professor of Rhetoric at the State University of New York at Geneseo. And I am so excited today to have actually my first repeat guest on, Anne Chang. Uh, We are discussing Anne's fabulous new book, Ornamentalism. And if you have not done so, I highly recommend that at some point you circle back and listen to the interview that we did last month with Anne on her previous book, Second Skin. Anne is Professor of English and Director of American Studies at Princeton University. And this book, um, so this book pretty much is, it can't be boiled down because it's just such a fabulous book. But if I had to identify sort of its two contributions, the first would be that Anne is essentially creating a theory of what she calls yellowness or a theory of the yellow woman. And as we'll discuss, this is very interesting because um, women of color has become a term that has sort of encompassed all of the marginalized experiences of various non-white women throughout history and in the present. But of course, that sort of collapses the experience of, for example, Black women into the experiences of Asian women. And those two experiences, in fact, have very different theoretical and lived entailments, which Anne parses out in the book, um, including issues of um, the synthetic and issues of the, the cyborg, as well as issues of who has the right to claim injury and how that injury is etched on someone's body. Although, as we'll discuss in the conclusion, that's not to say that the theory of yellowness does not have something to offer for a theory of um, Black women. And that's one of the things I love about this book is that it manages to separate without isolating different types of non-white women. And of course, as a white woman, this is sort of an interesting thing for me to try to explain. But uh, the second thing that the book does that's really fabulous is It is a theory of ornament or style, not as obviously like we're used to the kinds of theories that say for the last 200 years, um, people have dismissed style as being surface and and superfluous and not important or superfluous. And so we're used to kind of reactions back against that. But the counter move over the last, like I'd say, 30 years has been to sort of reclaim style as this uh, powerful emancipatory practice and surface as the all. And of course, just as Anne did with Second Skin, this is a book very much about style or ornament as an entry point for sort of what, what she calls the, the, the subject sort of without the subject made object in a sense, or the, the person made thing. And that style is not emancipatory, nor is it this thing that we need to reclaim the truth from beneath. Rather, it's a, a liminal point or a, a quilting point for all of these different ways in which traditionally marginalized and vulnerable subjects have to claim subjecthood through non-traditional means that are not available to them. So I will leave it at that for my quick summary. And Anne, do you want to say hello to everyone? Yes. Hi. Thanks, Lee, for that wonderful summary. Yeah. And- well, you know, it, this is a hard book to summarize, but you do your <laughs> best, right? It's kind of, it's kind of the job. Um, well, it's so great to have you back. I'm glad that you agreed to do both books. And and it's so interesting to see these side by side because they obviously share some definite themes, which I like that you you make direct reference to the Josephine Baker book in here because it really helps, I think, for the previous reader to see where the the points of similarity are. But also, the theory of the Asian woman is so different. I mean, it's not just it's not the same theory, and you still yet manage to make it valuable. I think to the study of Black womanhood, um, especially at the end with the Toni Morrison chapter, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Yes, I do think that's actually really. Um, I mean, that's a that's the that's what happens when you think about racialization as a process that invo- involves style. You have to be, on the one hand, attentive to the specificity of the certain kind of um, racial forms or certain kind of styles, but at the same time, because they are style, they're transferable. You know, and so it, it it's an opportunity to think about specific processes of racialization but also using those specificity then to go back to a, a, a more comparative framework. So yeah, I'm trying to do both. Wonderfully, and I think that's a good transition into um, one of the first things I noticed, and obviously 
I'm coming at this from obviously a much different perspective than you in terms of where I lie in identities, but you you sort of insist on this term yellow or yellow woman. And of course, obviously, this is an interesting move because you're not reclaiming yellow as some kind of emancipatory term like queer right. or bitch, mm-hmm. right? You're mm-hmm. right. you're insisting right. you're insisting on it as a very uh, rich theoretical concept, but you do insist on it. And I thought maybe you could start by talking about why the concept of the yellow woman and yellowness more generally? Yes, I think, uh, so first of all, um, thanks for this chance to talk about this book, which is, you know, of all, everything we do is important to us, but I feel like this book is something that it took many, many years in the making because partially because it took decades for me as a person to come to a kind of, you know, therapeutic confrontation with the idea of yellowness, yellowness at all. So, um, but anyway, but I think, you know, one of the first thing I want to point out is that we say in our contemporary parlance um, all the time, black women, brown women, white women, but we don't actually say yellow women. Why not? It is certainly not because the category is not relevant. I mean, there's a ways in which the Asiatic, um, the yellow woman in particular, is a figure that is so encrusted with racist and sexist, meaning that, you know, we can sort of all agree on this stereotype or the symptom, um, but we don't actually say yellow woman. And I think partially it has to do, my project started with me thinking about why is this term um, unsayable, you know? And there's something about, and I think when I started thinking about that question, I realized, first of all, that there is, in fact, a lot that's unsayable or unsaid about Asiatic femininity beyond, you know, the stereotypical language about that figure. But also I think there's something about this, and that led me to think about the ways in which yellow women have been racialized in a specific way, um, and w- which is, a, which is say, a very aestheticized way, which makes yellowness a kind of an ugliness, so an ugly term, right? So uh, in other words, there's, a, there's an ugliness around the term yellow women, that actually should force us to think more about why is Asiatic femininity, under quotation, protected under a certain kind of aesthetic term and how that protection is itself a kind of denial or um, disavowal. Um, so I, I, it's true that I don't want to redeem the word and recuperate it um, the way one might say, you know, queerness. Um, But instead, I insist on the word in many ways to sort of force us to confront the ugliness of the term, to force us to confront the continual racialization around this figure, a continual racialization that, in fact, culturally, we're unwilling to think about, even if it's happening all the time and is so animate. Well, and you make this really interesting claim at the top of you know, and I, I'm not a black woman, but um, I spend a lot more time with critical race studies, especially of, of black femininity than I do, obviously, with, well, in part because there wasn't a theory prior, but now I can also say that I am dabbling in the theory of yellow femininity as well. Um, but you say at the top of your preface, and you ask this question, what does it mean to survive as someone too aestheticized to suffer injury, but so aestheticized that she invites injury? And to me, Right, you kind of see there that that's not the same thing as as what we've been sort of th- reading in theory uh, and critique as what black femininity goes through, but it shares similar sites. But this idea of the two aestheticized, um, but yet the aesthetic the aesthetics don't protect her from anything. So I just thought that was a really fascinating way to to phrase that. Yes, I mean, I think one of the reasons we think so, I mean, as you said earlier on so cogently, you know, there's this large category of women of color, um, but for various sort of political, but also, you know, for me in the academic world, academic reasons, um, that category is mostly dominated by, you know, various kinds of feminisms. You know, there are whole bodies of literature on French feminism, white feminism, black feminism, but there is no such theoretical um, body of work around Asiatic femininity. And that is part of what I'm trying to speak to. I mean, this book is an invitation for others to start thinking about this category within you know, the world of femi- feminism at large. Um, so it's, it's, you know, 
I don't, I'm, this is definitely not the only theory out there um, to be had about Asiatic femininity, but I'm hoping at least it is the beginning. You at least invite conversations and the beginning of other people thinking through these issues. And, and I think one of the most um, interesting and intriguing and problematic aspect of Asiatic femininity is precisely its intimate relationship to aesthetics and its intimate relationship to a certain kind of objectification. And so, you know, in a history of racism, it's very clear that we're often looking at the ways in which people have been turned into things, chattel slavery being the most um, egregious and obvious example. But I think there's also been a history of the ways in which things have been turned into persons, and that we haven't talked about as much. And that, I think, has speaks more to a certain kind of racialization around Asiaticness, the ways in which things have been taken to stand in for people, things from silk to, uh, to, you know, to porcelain, um, to tea even, you know? Um, so, so I think that this is, I, I, I want to think about this as a, uh, as a contribution to the larger field of feminist theorization with a various particular focus on a particular kind of racialization that have gone largely untheorized, even if, often noted as a site of denigration. Yeah, I mean, and it, it definitely does that. It was, oh, it's just such a good book. Oh, you are, <laughs> your books are so good. Okay, so let's then turn, I mean, obviously we've already touched on this idea of surface and skin and marking and 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 the fact that you're kind of uh, sort of pulling a chiasmus where if the previous question was, how has the history of subjugation been turning subjects into objects or persons into things, you kind of want to ask sort of like a different version of that question, maybe not the opposite question, but another yeah. sort of brand of it. Right. Yeah, yeah, a compliment, right. So, and, th- and that brings you to this idea of ornamentalism, which of course echoes not only the concept of the Orient and also the concept of the ornament, but also Said's um, theory of Orientalism, which, and, which is Foucauldian as well. So there's a lot of ways in which that concept does a lot of work for you in terms of identifying where your point of intervention is. But would you be willing to sort of lay out ornamentalism as the theory and then maybe how it intersects with yellowness. And then we could probably maybe, I guess, dive at that point into sort of one of the many, many awesome examples that come okay. the book. Sounds great. So I think, so first of all, I want to say that I did not make up the word ornamentalism. It's been around for a very long time since the 19th century used by art historians to refer to usually just a condition of being overly ornamented. Right. Um, but in fact, there has been a long history, incredibly long, from Plato onward to today, a long philosophic, um, literary, and visual history of conflating oriental persons, so-called oriental persons or oriental character, with ornamental things. And so ornamentalism, when I hear the word ornamentalism, all I hear is the echo of or Orientalism, and it is actually no one has noticed this, <laughs> or you know this this echo, this almost hominific echo. But I don't think my noticing is so idiosyncratic on my part. As I said, there's this long history of conflating Oriental persons with ornamental things, and so ornamentalism, for me as a term, does two things. First, it just basically names exactly that history, that history of conflating Orientalness with ornamentalness. But more than just sort of using a word to name, you know, I don't want ornamentalism to be just another word to name an old symptom. I wanted to do some theoretical words, do some critical work. And so for me, ornamentalism, I use it also to refer to the ways in which personhood gets imagined through prosthetic ornamental um, means, right? The way personhood gets imagined whether it's legally, materially, or culturally, or even phantasmatically, or affectively, through what I call ornamental attachments. And what I think this, the importance of this theory for me is that it takes us, it does not deny Orientalism, which remain, I think, an extremely cogent mode of critique and just true, <laughs> you know? Um, but I think what what Orientalism wants to do is go where ornamentalism, I'm sorry, where, see, this is something, I confuse myself, this is terrible. 
A couple times I had to go back and make sure I was I reading know, the right word. It's, I know. Don't worry about it. But I'm hoping that what ornamentalism does is go beyond what Orientalism stops. So part of the problem with the discourse of Orientalism as a critique, um, even though it's you know an accurate one, is that it takes us to a, a, a moral assessment about commodification. And in fact, commodification and fetish are the two primary modes of sort of antidote or fight we have against Orientalism, the charge of projection and appropriation and so forth. But the problem with that is that once you name something a fetish or a stereotype, you actually kind of stop looking at it. And also I think it closes off further conversations about, well, what are the afterlives of having, of being an object? What are the consequences of that? And so I like to think of Orientalism as a way for us to not deny the reality of objectification, but to explore the consequences of that objectification, consequences that are often um, con- terribly constrict- conscriptive, but also potentially might open up other kinds of other ways of survival that we don't allow for. So I like to think my shorthand for this is that Orientalism is a critique, but ornamentalism offers us a theory of being, a theory of being that can accommodate the interface between personness and objectness. Yeah, and the the other way to think about it is obviously chronologically, because you, you sort of ornamentalism needs Orientalism, but Orientalism is was was a stepping stone to starting to think about these issues. But it it thirty years later, it just doesn't have the nuance that's required. Yeah, yeah it's. I mean, you do a great job. I I, I can imagine if, if if you if you were my predecessor, like like you are, Saeed's, I'd be very proud. Be very proud of you. Well, you know, I, recently I was in New York. Um, you know, in twenty sixteen for that very famous. Um, I'm sorry, twenty seventeen show called China Through the Looking Glass at the Met. You know, and um, the, you know, on the one hand, the show was enormously popular. I mean, there were so many people going. I mean, with lines out the door. They had to extend the exhibit three months, um, enormously uh, popular show. But there were also, of course, you can, ex- as you might imagine, a lot of protests around the exhibit for being Orientalist, you know, um, because it's called China Through the Looking Class, but it's all about Western um, designers and how they make use of tropes of the Orient, basically. Um, and so the thing that struck me as I was walking through that exhibit was, on the one hand, how extensive the history of Orientalism is, and on the other hand, how, one, how extensive and how incredibly still vibrant it is today. But at the same time, I was stunned by how limited our discourse is to it. I thought about all the people sending letters or pre- protests against appropriation and commodification, and it was like throwing pebble at a giant wall. You know, the, the protests are all, you know, cogent and legitimate. But they seem to have no force against the compelling vibrancy of this thing called Orientalism. Orientalism, And I started to think about how instead of trying to deny the abject condition of Orientalism, what would it mean to think about um, ways of surviving as that object? What are the because people do survive, right? And so, but what are the modes of the survival? What are the kind of ontological possibilities that can thrive in a situation of so uh, of so much discipline and, and debasement? It's interesting because this is sort of a side note, but when I was in grad school, I mean, really early in grad school, I remember one of my faculties saying that at this stage in my career, my job was to put containers around things. So it was to take a theory like, you know, like, like appropriation, for example, and then go find a thing that, that did that. And that's terrible. But then he would say, but then he would say, but your phase two, as you become like a real academic is, is to, is to find the misfit, 
right? To find how not only the misfit in the sense of they don't fit, but also the misfit exemplar that complicates the distinction. But so many of us don't, we just stop at the, oh, well, this is hegemonic masculinity. Look, I found it. Or this is uh, the pen, the uh, the panopticon. Oh, look, I found it. And and the problem right, there's that no is that the actually, yeah. it actually leaves those things um, completely intact. <laughs> you know, in some ways, by virtue of denouncing those things, you have also left them intact. Yeah, I, I heard a really interesting interview. Actually, it was one of the first interviews I listened to on New Books Network, and it was with um, Eileen Wharton. Oh, I can't remember her name, but she's an indigenous scholar from Australia, and. For the last 20 years, this concept of, of settler colonialism had been really popular as sort of a replacement for the idea of just like uh, post-colonialism. And she said, I just, I just refuse that term because the more we use it, the more it settles the settler oh, yes. colonialist. And I was like, oh, that's so good. So yeah, very similar kinds of things moving around um, that, that are inspiring ornamentalism, but also it's a very unique theory. And I actually wanted to ask you if you don't, these are kind of very specific questions, but I noticed that in, I think you published a, an excerpt or a, a piece of this in Critical Inquiry last year, Ornamentalism. And in that one, you gave it a subtitle, uh, a, a Theory of the Yellow Woman or a Theory of, a- of Asian Femininity. I don't have the article in front of me, but I, I read it a couple of weeks ago. Um, but you didn't subtitle the book. Is there a reason why you just went for the simple ornamentalism? Oh, yes. Well, first of all, I, that, that subtitle went to, to be uh, in the preface title. The preface is called Preface, A Feminist Theory of the Yellow Woman. So I, I saved that. Um, but the reason I, it's not in the title. I do see that. Okay. Yeah, the reason it's in the title, like actually there's several reasons. One, I thought that I didn't want to limit the audience to only people interested in the yellow woman. I thought the book has something larger to say about race and stylization that, and, and also because it's comparative. Um, so that's that's one thing. The second thing is... Um, I know it's cheeky and it's probably very um, impudent or in, in, on my part, but I want it to stand as a kind of um, companion piece to Orientalism, Saeed's Orientalism. Um, and I now just tell you as a kind of a fun thing that the reason, you know, there there actually um, is a book out there by a esteemed colleague of mine at Princeton called Ornamentalism: How the British Won Their Empire, Saw Their Empire, and um, and that was. And then that's one reason not to name it just Orientalism. But, um, but I, but one of the things about um, David Canada's book Orientalism is that I, when I first heard that book's title, I was so excited. This is when I was working on this book, and I immediately went and read it, and I was really surprised that for a book about British imperialism in the 19th century in India, the word. Orientalism never occurred in Canadine's book. Like he did not hear the echo of Orientalism in ornamentalism at all. Now, it's not that surprising because his argument in that book is that British imperialism was never about race, but about class. So he just wasn't that interested in the question of race. Um, and so, um, but in thinking about my book, I thought, at first I thought I should name, it should not have the same name. But then I thought, why should British... Um, empire own ornamentalism. <laughs> I wanted to reclaim ornamentalism. So, um, but finally, but not least, I, I have always wanted to have a book with no subtitle, <laughs> with no colon, just as a kind of um, cleanness. I really like it. Plus, with um, with the art on the front, which for the audience. Oh, by the way, I should add to the audience. This is a really it's it's this book is twelve dollars on Kindle right now. So the the price came down just in time for the interview. So if you're listening, um, I really liked it in hardcover. I don't know. There's something about the this is a tactile book. I mean, not like that literally you can touch it, but the images. I felt the same way about the Baker book. I was really had to happy to have a very uh, a physical copy. So I would recommend this in physical copy just because. The engagement with the images is so interesting, but well, that's the one cover thing, is yeah. this. That's one thing yeah. I always ask um, Oxford because especially for my books, I really feel like they have to have a kind of feel. And this one has both a, a sort of a contrast between a, a gloss and a matte and that, that contrast. So the actual feel of the paper, uh, of the cover is important to me. Um, but are you going to ask about the image? I love 
Yeah, and the image, oh, with the title, it's yeah, it's just a beautifully done cover. And I love that they put, so on the, oh, gosh, I'll have to take a picture of this for the promo. Uh, but on the spine, it's got your name and the title and the press. But then at the very top, it has a tiny version of the cover photo so that if you're looking at the spine, you still get the same image at the very top of the yeah. of the the upper half of this dress with the with the red beaded collar and, the, and that has that sort yeah, of yeah. You know what I love about that dress is on the one hand it, it sort of captures something I'm really um, interested in the book, which is the way in which an object can have so much humanness without needing the human. So this dress is so is constructed in such a way that it can practically stand up <laughs> on its own. And I also love that it's headless. It's headless and um. It has been chopped off. So, <laughs> well, I also thought it was weird, and I might be reading too much into this because I've stared at this this book so much. But there are these four. So the the dress is very beautiful. It has this beaded mm-hmm. ornate. Um, it's like almost a sheer mesh, and then the red beads kind of are, are more dense across the shoulders and arms and and waist. But then up underneath the very ornate collar, they become more sparse. And then there's this sort of blank space right in the center of the chest. But then it has those. The, there, there are four squares mm-hmm. of beaded squares and then the one long mm-hmm, square. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's a weird kind of cyborg quality to that, almost like buttons. It is. Um, it's, actually, it does two things. On the one hand, it looks sort of um, – it's geometric in that kind of technological way, so that what well, you call me the cyborg aspect. On the other hand, and, and this is um, also why I like it, it I think it also gestures – um, to a kind of hieroglyph, Chinese hieroglyphic, it's like a pseudo, it's like a pseudo Chinese character. Yeah. Okay, and the reason I like those oh. two is because one of the things that I explore in the book is the question: How is it that Asiatic femininity can be at once, at the same time, be something regressive and atavistic and futuristic? The cyborg, you know, um, the the artificial life. Um, so I'm trying to. Um, so so that's one of the question, and I love that you notice that about the the design, the center of this dress, because it plays on both that sense of the old, the sense of an ancient language, but yeah. also of a, a, a future language, a, a more digital one. Yeah, and I mean, it did a it did a kind of work for the overall book. That, for example, if Blue Willow had been the front, it wouldn't have done the same work. Even though presumably you're looking at similar exactly, artifacts. exactly. Yeah, because actually that was the other image that was a possibility, the Blue Willow. But um, but I, I picked the red one for for everything that you just no, said. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a great it's a great move. All right, um, so let's dive into some 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 case. Now this book this cuts a broad swath. So you make the very astute move to go chronological, but but in terms of artifacts, I mean, this book cuts across sushi, it cuts across <laughs> novels, it cuts across museum exhibits, legal cases, uh, contemporary film. I mean, it is, it's a very wide swath of different types of text, which I really enjoy. I sort of, oh, as well as art and images on film and cinema. And I, I sort of am a drawn to that kind of conjunctural sort of analysis, but also you have the added benefit of it covering um, a century of of exploration, which is really fascinating. So I told you, I sort of, I was sort of drawn to the Piccadilly uh, analysis as well as the Ghost in the Shell. But I think we could really start with any one of them. Do you have one in particular uh, that you really yeah. like to talk about? Well, what about? I mean, one of the, I think one of the reasons to go through so many um, the the wise the, the breadth of the project is I was really in, invested in actually, you know, demonstrating the pervasiveness of this figure of Asiatic female ornamentality in all these realms. And so, you know, it's the the historical move is important to me for anchoring and for developing for develops how see how the figure develops. But I very much wanted to make sure that we understand that this is not just a figure that we might detect in popular culture, for example, but that it actually can be found in the realms of law, in the realms of um, um, science, technology, in the realms, you know, in various places um so yeah so you tell me what you like about the piccadilly which is one of my favorite um movies because it's so yeah it's so amazing a film well i well first of all i really love the way that you read light i think it's i mean part of it is it's just really hard to find incredibly good film critique because 
it's uh, it's you have to have sort of a very nuanced understanding of what's happening. And you do this thing with film, and also this is going to be so hard to describe. But the the way that you contrast the white women, uh, Jean Harlow, I think uh, uh, Marlena Dietrich's in there too, and the way that their sort of shine is presented versus the way that the um, that Anne Main Wong sort of shows up in Piccadilly. And then you also do this really interesting slippage with the word shine. So I just thought that whole that whole shiny piece was really fascinating. And of course, it starts with that scene, the ballroom scene where she's down on the floor and these lights are kind of illuminating in this it's crisscross pattern. So I just I thought the reading was so fabulous. And it really gets at this idea of the way that her injury is kind of codified by her ability to perform style in the scene not in an emancipatory way, but also not in a way in which she's only ever an object. Right. And that's, that's the, the delicacy of understanding, um, you know, the kind of agency that I'm trying to trade. It is not, you know, the kind of agency that I normally think of as a fully um, intentional subject with freedom and liberty to express herself, but the kind of more liminal or limited kind or alternative forms of agency that one who is, you know, in this case, literally under a script, right? Can or cannot exercise. Um, but the film, anyone, I'm sorry, I, I, the film was um, very recently, you know, less within the last 10 years, um, re, um, re-digitized or remastered or whatever, the restored, I'm sorry, <laughs> it was restored. And I saw it at the, um, um, the Castro Theater in San Francisco when he first was shown, restored, and the thing that struck me, well, first of all, I have to say, um, very much like Josephine Baker, Anna May Wong was someone that I, for a long time, I did not want to go see. That is to say, I've heard of her reputation way before I have even seen her performances, and I hadn't wanted to watch her performances because I thought she was just going to be, you know, another Orientalist fantasy, you know, of yeah. women, and it was just going to be painful to watch, and I wasn't that interested in it. But just like with Josephine Baker, when I actually like go and look at their work, their performances, um, it is not what you think at all. It is so, I mean, it is, it is all those things, but it's also so much more. And the thing about Piccadilly is that's amazing is that, you know, it's a black and white um, silent film, but it is so full of, um, of quality of light that you forget that you're not even looking at a <laughs> color film um, because, in fact, it is such a profound meditation on the nature of light. And I love how light as a cinematic medium and light as an ornamental quality because um, Anna Mae Wong wears a lot of bling-bling <laughs> in this movie um, are, um, speak to each other and help us rethink another kind of light, which is the light of fetishism. Right, um, what you know, what Freud calls a shine on the nose, um, and so I try to, you know, sort of think through my way through these different kinds of light, in order to theorize the ways in which um, anime Wang's particular kind of charisma and embodiment and personhood in this, you know, her celebrity, her her persona um, in this film is constructed through these. Con- you know, con- counterintuitively strategies and moments of disappearance into light. And the it's the, the work of celebrity too in this particular chapter I really enjoyed because obviously you um when you work with a lot of undergraduates, you hear you hear them always regurgitate to you things that they think you want to hear. Like, oh well uh, it's bad because they're a celebrity and we just fetishize and sexualize them and that's always negative and it's it's just, you know, it's patriarchy. And this is one of those situations where all of those words get used, well, except patriarchy, but none of them get used in the way that – they get used the way you want people to use them, which is you use celebrity and uh, fetish as sort of levers for thinking about what Wong is doing, not only as a, as a particular subject, but also as kind of a synecdoche for Asian women, especially at a certain time in history. And again, it, there's a very interesting um, mutual imbrication between – her subjecthood and her objecthood here that is in many that is very much an effective ornament and surface light being one of those things that has both subject and surface and so it's like is light an ornament is kind of an interesting question right, right. in in this chapter yeah and right? like yeah, is, and actually is light an object when i was writing when i was working on this chapter i spent a long time trying to sort of even trying to name light as a 
thing in the world, you know, um, because it is um, present, but not, I mean, it's not material. It's not quite a thing, but it's not quite, um, but it has, it's, but it's also hey, has a lot of agency of its own, you know? Um, and I think one of the things that I hope that thinking about the shine in, um, in Piccadilly through Anime One, we can also get at a different, and this is you know, part and parcel of the entire project, but to get at a different grammar of racial embodiment. And so that even though, you know, Anime One is always known as, you know, the, the actress who, you know, the, the, the sexy, you know, Chinese woman, um, it's, it's when you actually look at the film, so much of her um, seductiveness or uh, charismatic charism, charisma comes from moments where she actually like hides herself, you know, or behind shininess. So it's a kind of hiding in plain, plain sight. That's really fascinating. I'll send you the, have you, have you ever read Eugenie Brinkema's Forms of the Affects? You know, I haven't. Sounds great. I should, I'm going to write this down now. <laughs> it is fantastic. Uh, I keep trying to get her on the, the show, but she's on sabbatical in, in Poland or somewhere. I can't remember where she's from, but she has a reading of this horror film and the way that all of the grief and the tragedy in the film is not from the feelings that you have about the sadness or the trauma, but about the way that light works. Mm. Yeah. And it, your, your reading uh, echoed hers in a lot of ways because, I mean, you're doing really fabulous things with light. And, of course, it's hard to even describe this to the reader, A, because even the book, you're limited to the film stills, right. Um, right. which I, I'm actually – I haven't watched the film, but I'm definitely going to go back and do it now. But also you have to kind of describe the, the shininess and kind of almost the – yeah, the blinginess of it, the way that they – the way that whenever you want something to look shiny and fabulous, you add all of this extra light echoing off of it. Right, and actually, the 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 thing the movies are saying moments when the stage, the scene is saying, "Look at me." When and I'm around the actress saying, "Look at me" when she's performing. But these are scenes where you actually cannot see her because there are moments in this film where the light is so blinding that there are moments, a seconds when the screen just goes complete white. <laughs> um, so there's these moments of high. So I was really interested in the, all the moments when specularity is punctuated and demanded. And it is at those very moments that actually the viewer experiences a certain kind of blindness. I thought about that. And it is that contrast that I think is amazing. And I think that contrast offers us a really powerful way or paradigm for thinking about the, the ways in which anime one wields a particular um, kind of celebrity persona and subjectness that demands attention, but does so in ways that are incredibly, strangely, eerily self-erasing. Self-erasing is an important part. Yeah, that's really good. It was, yeah, it was a really fascinating read. Um, and again, it... Um you know, you ha and to read this book, and I think to read it well, you really have to give up that surface depth binary because, again, you want you want to kind of come back to like what's behind the light, what is the light representing, what is the light, and you have to really get on board with what if it's all just the light, like what if light is what there is, and the rest of these things we sort of construct around it because of the way that the discourses have been circulated, but in fact, there might not be artifice and truth in the scene. Right, on that, you know, on the one hand, light can be seen as, um, as you say, a veil that hides something real. Um, but on the other hand, it could be, and that's what we don't think about as often, is that it disperses things. Um, and so if you think about this kind of dispersal in relation to racialized embodiment, um, it's a very different way of thinking about how racialized bodies come to be um, represented. And that. And it's interesting too because that that movie is what the late 1920s, but then you by the end of the film, we've, or by the end of the book, we've sort of come to the the present day moment into two films that ostensibly are very different from Piccadilly because a because of their they're almost a hundred years apart, and b because these are more um, uh, sci-fi tech tech films, uh, The Ghost in the Shell and Ex Machina. Is there a third one in there? Um, I also talk about Get Out because oh, get it's out. a kind of yeah. comparative racial yeah. moment. Yeah. 
Because these are all sort of body snatching. Right, body snatching. <laughs> and and you're looking at something that I think, other than the fact they both have Asian women in them, you wouldn't link together. But then, of course, Get Out only really has the one, the, like, really, you wouldn't say this is a film about Asian identity. It does have that kind of quirky little um, bitter at the at the uh, at the, the, the the body auction, but that's kind of a still. You wouldn't look at this film and think, "Oh, this is a film about Asian identity," and yet they have so much in common despite being so far apart. Right, and I actually think that um, Get Out is really. I, I actually think Get Out is a very. I mean, it is clearly. Um, a movie about a plot wise certainly it's it's about black and racially speaking it's black and white right um and but I think it actually is a very um thoughtful film that Jordan Peele is very smart because I think um embedded in get out embedded within the black and white um dynamic is a bunch of other racial ghosts in the in the film you know there's as you said there's that weird moment in the garden. Where the sort of the sort of pseudo, not pseudo, but the kind of um, contemporary day auction, slave auction scene. There's the one Japanese man who asks a peculiar question, right? There's that, but there's also um, other moments of um, other sort of ha- hauntings of racial presences. So, for example, I think one of the biggest and most interesting questions in Get Out is not the question of um, passing, right? But the question of assimilation, and which is actually a notion that is much more linked to other racial groups in the U.S., whether it's um, Asian Americans or Jewish Americans. Um, so I, since I think the question of assimilation is also um, brings up, uh, invites comparative racialization questions. And then finally, but not least, I don't think it's such an accident that the instrument that's being used to um, interpolate and imprison Chris Washington, the main character, by Chrissy Armitage, the psychologist, is a teacup, you know, which tea and teacup, um, which is a... What about that? Yeah, go ahead. That's, you don't know, I just hadn't thought about it. Yeah. Keep going. Keep going. I'm well, on. You're because, on a roll. Because, the, you know, because if, if that movie is about the commodity of the black body, um, uh, you know, in this case, the ultimate sort of takeover of the body. Um, the teacup reminds us that American racial history has been about a lot of other kinds of commodifications as well. And the, the porcelain is, a, for me, a very, um, I mean, as you can see from the Blue Willow chapter, porcelain is a very um, imperial, fraught, racialized material. You know, from, from the early discovery of porcelain, the um, European and American desire for this product that for many, you know, decades that they, that, that Europeans could not reproduce. Um, it come to stand in for not only um, the material wealth of goods from China that the West desire and wants, but it also come to st- take on all these, accrue all these sort of affective qualities um, you know, it's cold, but it's hard. It's, you know, like there's all these sort of like discourse around um, um, affective language around um, porcelain that are, you know, has a kind of anthropomorphic quality to it and racialized quality. I mean, this is why China with a little C equals China with a big C. <laughs> you know, there's a little like a confusion of persons and things right there. Um, and so in that moment when, when I think when, when Missy is um, basically... Um, you know, in a way, it's kind of a subtle metaphor for for the ways in which whiteness, often kind, oftentimes, um, subjugates blackness through the mediated um, function of yellowness. I mean, it made me think about like during Brown v. Board of Education, how the racialization of Japanese and Japanese American during internment was brought up in um, in you know through Brown v. Board of Education, now, legally speaking. Oftentimes, when there are adjudication around black race, blackness as a racial category, yellowness get raised up as well as a foil. Sometimes, you know, usually um, as a kind of um, antagonistic foil against blackness. 
Um, but um, just like just like model minority is a discourse about you know yellowness that is raised in order to discipline and shame um, blackness. Um, so so anyway, it's subtle. You know, it's obviously not a movie about. And if, you know, about it's definitely a movie about black and whiteness, but I, I'm just suggesting that there are all these subtle um, cues in the movie that opens up windows for thinking race in a much more comparative, um, triangular way. Uh, the, the Get Out reading, I mean, th- again, this is one of those moments in the book where you, you start off the book kind of with this insistence that this is not a theory for all women of color because it's it's problematic for a number of reasons to treat them all the same way and that this is a theory of the yellow woman. But of course, this is one of those moments where the book really starts to meet up with the fact that the theory of ornamentalism, which as you pointed out, exceeds a theory of the yellow woman. It just is also the grounding point for feminist theory of the yellow woman starts to match up with the ways that it helps us think about how black identity has been constructed um, through objecthood as well. And, And get out is this interesting moment where you see similar threads of ornamentalism show up, but it's not exactly the same because, of course, we're talking about a different racialized injury. And I thought your your point about Mr. Tan- Tanaka, mm-hmm, I think is that yeah, his name? Mm-hmm. Right. And his question, do you find that the, it's better? Do you want to talk about that that one scene? Because um, it's really fascinating and it's kind of interesting that you <laughs> – I know. That this, like that this a- scene has one Asian in it the whole time and this is his move. Right. That there's um, So this is the, the garden party. The, the, the um, Armitage is holding this garden party, which I, later we discover is basically a slave auction. Um, and you know, there's one – Asian or Asian American is unclear in the movie, you know, um, if he is Asian American or Asian. Um, it shows up and it's a Mr. Uh, Mr. Tanaka. And on the one hand, we know right away that he belongs to the party, um, as opposed to Chris uh, Washington, who is the object, right, of, of that party. Um, but we also know that Mr. Tanaka doesn't fit at all. He stands out. Um, by being the only, you know, Asian character, he's the only person with a, a accent and therefore speaks in a much more diffident fashion. He is all alone in a party full of couples. Um, so there are many ways in which he, he is in which is very typical um, for sort of like the the social status of Asians and Asian Americans in America, which is belonging, you know, kind of belonging to the white um, community, but not. Um, so he's already this kind of um, interesting character in that way. But he asks a question of our protagonist, which is, do you think, uh, I can't remember the exact words now, something, do you think it is more advantage? Do you find there's more advantage or disadvantage to being African-American? And that is just the weirdest question. Yeah, it's something to that effect, right? And it's the only thing he says in the whole thing. And he sort of asks it in this very casual assessment sort of way um, as he's kind of wandering around this party. Right. And the question is more or less advantage than being white or than being yellow. You know, there was something so... Um, and the reason, yeah. and we can't tell, um, but he also brings out, it really, I mean, it's just a second in the movie, but it really brings out the weirdness of American racialization when you, when, when it's, when it's triangulated, because, um, there's a lot of what's confusing about that question raises all the questions about, well, are we comparing blackness to, um, what does it mean for an, for an, a, an, uh, an Asian American subject to think about blackness in relation to whiteness? Um, it reminds his presence reminds us that um, that what we what what the West you know to speak very generally what the West might want from blackness is a fit body but what they want from but it's not going to be uh, when reminded that what's for auction is not the yellow body because you don't want the yellow body uh, what you want is a yellow thing you want the teacup but not the person <laughs> you know um you also remind us that um um there's a whole other scenario that's completely unthinkable in that garden and in our world which is how come the white male body isn't up for sale you know um so 
again, you know, I think Jordan Peele is really brilliant because that little scene with that little interjection with the one question from um, a solitary character who never happens again, nonetheless opens up, I think, this black hole of questions about um, American racial dynamics, way, you know, way beyond the black and white question. Yeah, and just for the sake of the record, the question that uh, he asks is, is the African-American experience an advantage or disadvantage? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, too, because I, you know, when this film came out, every student I had wanted to write a paper on it. So I read a lot about this film. And, of course, inevitably, in fact, I'm looking at something, um, I think it's from Bustle. I, uh, yeah. Uh, and a lot of people, oh, well, well, you know, oh, this was just... Um, this was just Jordan Peele tokenizing Asians and putting one Asian in the film because uh, he, he, he doesn't want to acknowledge the history that Asians have played in racism. And this is one of those moments where the token is so important, though. Right. It's, and, and you're doing and so you can't much work. Call it a, right. <laughs> you can't token. just call it a token yeah. and assume it's doing just the one kind of work right. that we associate with tokenism. It's, in fact, as a token that he's able to do the work that he did instead of, for example, just adding a lot more Asian characters in the film, which would defeat the whole purpose. Right. Right. I so, agree. yeah. Another good example of like where, again, like you said earlier, reading the specificity of the exact way in which Asianness shows up in this film, not just reading the fact it only shows up once in one scene. Right. As if that's somehow a problem in and of itself. No, exactly. If you just call him in token, um, then we miss the opportunity to think much yeah. deeper about yeah. you know what's being provoked yeah yeah i think so well um gosh we're already at 50 minutes really i just i just yeah. so enjoyed talking to you <laughs> these interviews with you always go so fast so do you want to talk we haven't i think that i don't know i really i do love the stuff with ghost in the shell but i also really thought that the opening chapter on the women the chinese lewd women coming over from Coming, coming over from the boat and the court cases that surrounded whether or not they were sort of legitimate pers- subjects, uh, not citizens, but, uh, you know, like kind of international subjects. Right. Was, and, you, and you started with it, I presume, for a reason. So unless you have another thought, I'm thinking we should maybe spend our last few minutes there. Okay, sounds good. No, I mean, I started there because I thought it was the, um, first of all, it is one of, it's probably the, I think a lot of um, historians agree that, the legal scholar agree that it is probably the most important um, habeas corpus case of the 19th century, though, you know, almost nobody knows anything about it. Um, And the entire transcript is available at Amazon.com. It is an amazing drama. Um, It's a drama of of the visible and ornamentality in ways that are so much more complicated than when I first heard about the case. But reading this transcript was really amazing. So I thought it was a really great place to begin because – it shows us the ways in which ideas of Asiatic ornamentality can play such a surprisingly instrumental role in legal adjudication of what counts as a legal person. And even though it is um, a very um, specific case about Chinese immigrants, I think it, it lays the groundwork for us to think about the ways in which um, personhood, legal personhood, to this day, is a um, a question and a construction that is often made around something abstract. Right? A legal person, for the same reason that we can treat a corporation as a person, it is because legal personhood is fundamentally an abstract notion, even though philosophically the discourse that supports it culturally is about, um, you know, the the enlightened subject, as we understand it from Western enlightenment, um, the individual, the person. I mean, there's a whole rhetoric of personhood around legal personhood, but that's actually not legally how a person is constructed. So this is a wonderful case first to understand something about the specificity of how the Chinese is um, recognized as a category of people or not recognized as a category of people, but it's a seed for a much larger history of thinking about abstract personness as a characteristic of legal personhood. And um and right and then you you kind of have this idea of is it ornamental personhood? Yellow what's the phrase? Uh, ornamental personhood, yeah. Yeah, which it was really fascinating because you use the the case of these women coming over and oh and we've got to talk about the stamp too 
and the women coming over as this interesting examination of sort of like how a, a person gets turned into a subject and what the criteria for personhood is. And those legal definitions of personhood is something that comes from some kind of inner essence. And then that gives you a lever to discuss ornamental personhood as this alternate way of thinking how subjects who are literally barred from the law are able to claim some kind of some kind of subjectivity, even if it's not maybe the quote ideal one that we would want for them. And then you talk about how they were literally stamped on their skin as as subjects, and yet even the stamps kind of weren't enough to get them recognized. But so they were in some ways marks of subjecthood, and in some ways not, right? Because they had to be rec- they had to be recognized. Well, as they, such. they were. They were. It was. I'll explain what I mean in a minute. But basically, they were seen through something that was actually not there. They were seen only via the medium of something that wasn't present. And then they were not seeing via the present, the thing that's present that should be seen, you know, the reason and that that's the, that was actually part of the f- uh, fun, but also horrifying aspect of this case was that the women were, they were, they were on a boat here. They were not allowed to disembark because the, 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 um, the officials in the, in California, San Francisco basically said that they were prostitutes because there were women traveling along and the case went to coins. The first case I went to the U S Supreme court, you went all the way to the U S Supreme court. But so the whole premise of around whether or not these women are actually um, prostitutes um, turned on the fact that about questions of what they were wearing. So literally 95% of the trial were these um, white male lawyers questioning um, and discussing the question of female ornamentation, what kind of hair pieces, how, you know, what color the silk that they were wearing, etc. cetera. Um, but what you realize halfway through the trial, and by also reading local newspaper coverage, is that the women were not wearing any of these ornaments because, you know, practically speaking, these are people who have been on a boat for over 60 days um, in the 1700s. They're, they're not dressed up, <laughs> you know? So what you realize is that, you know, for the entire trial, this conversation about ornaments was actually about invisible ornaments, ornaments that you could not see at all. Um, but the invisibility of these ornaments actually allow all these um, legal uh, meditation around what constitutes a proper or moral person that can be recognized in the, by, in the eyes of the law, etc. And then at the way at the end, um, you know, we discover that, you um, one of the pro- so these women were in fact you know they actually had papers um, they had um, travel papers and when they were right before they left Hong Kong to be on this boat to San Francisco Bay they went through all these interviews they had papers they, and this is before passports right so these women were actually stamped on their arms by the local of American officials before they even got on the boat so in a way their their bodies were the passports right um, and if you think about those stamps as the ornaments that are legal ornaments, but nobody actually, um, even though um, they were stamped and that's a sign of their le- the legality of their uh, travel, none, it wasn't recognized. So the one thing that was actually, the one ornament that's actually real and visible and legal was the one that the court did not recognize. So it was just this amazing drama of the visible and the in- invisible in a way that I, you know, when you read this tr- trial, you think you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> It's pretty amazing. You have a real knack. I don't know if it's just that's why these books just take years because you spend so many times dig, t- digging through all of these uh, archives. But th- the thread that you managed to pull across all of these diff- very, very dispersed artifacts is pretty fascinating. Um, and to that point, for the last couple of minutes, we really shouldn't leave without finishing with your reading of The Choke Cherry and Toni Morrison's Beloved, which is the coda. At the end of the ch- at the very end of the book, because I just I could not have thought of a better way to tie this all together. So, if you want to maybe uh, reflect a bit on what the argument there is, it's and it's not very long. I mean, it's 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 a very small piece of the Toni Morrison novel that you're looking at, which is primarily this tree as an image. But also, by the end of your analysis, it's not an image; it is what she is. Right. So, I I, I really wanted to end on a meditation about. Um, to, to sort of gesture to the ways in which ornamentalism, even as it is um, in many ways grounded in a sort of, uh, in a very specific uh, form of racialization around Asiatic femininity, that it has a larger stake uh, to help us understand the implication between things and persons. And I think 
um, this this is a very shorthand, but um, but I think um, one of the most um, important things about Black feminist theory in the last twenty five years or more is that it has taught us to uh, to pay attention to the flesh, and it's you know it's being um, you know it's which is in, important, inspiring, but I think our attention to the flesh has also prevented us from paying just as much attention to things that are, I'm calling, you know, artificial and synthetic things. And I think it is very, it can be extremely powerful to think about how ornamentalism, to think about how personhood is um, 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 produced and conscripted, not through the flesh, but through artificial things, um, can be equally, I hope, um, illuminating for thinking about African-American subject. Um, and so I thought in order to do this, that I would go to Toni Morrison's um, Beloved because it is understood um, as one of, as a very powerful argument for the flesh because there's a very famous passage from Baby Suggs who talks about how you got to love it, flesh that needs to be loved. And so it is very much a book about the flesh and a longing for flesh that has been um, horribly injured and scarred. But it is also at the same time a really fascinating book where whenever um, traumatic things happen, you also get an eruption of abstract synthetic things. Um, you know, she talks about, um, um, she has all these, uh, she talks about, you know, a cut under, you know, a, a neck cut as a necklace, as a scar, as a necklace, uh, or a smile under the chin. She talks about um, um, the, the, the horrible scar on the Sethe's back as a gorgeous choke cherry. Um, and so part of, part of what I think the beloved is asking us to think about in addition to the flesh and the question of the flesh is to understand how um, the relationship between aesthetic ornaments and violence. Uh, and so I, I sort of do a reading of the ways in which the scar, I set this back, which is seeing as this, which Morrison um, does not describe only in organic terms. In fact, she describes the almost mostly or primarily in synthetic terms um, or at least um, non-human terms. Um, she talks about it like a, uh, a branches, leaves that blossom, like a wrought iron, um, a sculpture, uh, a decorative work of an ironsmith. And, um, and so I think I, I want to suggest that it is through the figure of the choke cherry that Morrison also invites us to think about the ways in which our relationship to our body um, is mediated not only through our sense of our own fleshness, but also the sense of objectness. And this is the this is the really harsh. I thought the harsh insight that the novel um, invites us to think about that, which is that a body that has been a corporeal, organic body that has been horribly abused and denigrated and scarred, that the way for that body back to itself may not be just a turn to a fantasy of a whole body, but that it might actually require um, a sort of um, a, a courtship of that body as an object before you can actually get it back again. Um, so I, I'm not sure if that's a very, I, that's probably not a very good summary. Um, but the bottom line being, I, I really wanted this chapter to help us think through the ways in which um, an author like Toni Morrison is also meditating around this question of ornamentalism as well as of the flesh. I, I was very compelled. Again, it, it's risky. It's a little bit uncomfortable. And I think that's a sign that it's, it's doing the right work. Your reading of Beloved. Yeah, it's an uncomfortable book. I mean, I think that's... A uh, and it's also a very uncomfortable book. I mean, that's yeah. why I think Morrison is such amazing... That's why Toni Morrison is Toni Morrison. You know, like it's not... Um, you're not... We're not going to get the easy solution to um, a problem that's century-old and incredibly traumatic history, you know? Um, 
So um, thinking about what it means right. for a traumatized subject to grieve, um, you know, ideals about the subject, the human subject, is wonderful, but it, it may, it, it's not enough. No, agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, it's uh, it's a racial it's a racial ideal, right? right? It's a racialized ideal from the start. Right. So you have to think about the way that that gets coded. Absolutely. Well, we're at time. Okay. This was, and I, we, you know, we made, but we managed to do it. We managed yes. to cover all the things on the list. Thank you so, so much. Once again, I will. Yeah. Oh, you as well. Uh, so once again, I cannot encourage enough that everyone listening get a preferably hard copy. But if you if you get the Kindle, I'll understand. Uh, <laughs> copy of Ornamentalism by Anne Anne Lynn Chang. And which actually just was the 2009 release. So this is, um, we're getting this uh, interview very soon after the book has come out, which is always nice. Well, Anne, it was wonderful to talk to you. Now you just need to write another book so we can have a third <laughs> interview. Well, thank you. It's always a delight. Thanks you so much for your yeah, time. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much. And once again, everyone should, if you have time, both read uh, Anne's uh, Second Skin Oh, Josephine Baker and the Modern Surface. Am I remembering the yes. subtitle correctly? Yes, uh, which came out a few years ago. And also check out the interview that Anne and I did for that book last month on the New Books Network. Goodbye, everyone. And thank you again, Anne, for coming Bye. On. Thank you. Bye, yeah. Uh...